As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, let us open up with prayer before we do that. Uh, Lord, as we come this morning, as we come under the mighty power of your word this morning. Uh, Lord, we come to you trusting uh, that your word is true, that everything is fulfilled in Christ, and that the Holy Spirit of God reveals your will uh, for our lives, for your glory and our good. So this morning, as we turn to your word, we pray that we come uh, submitted to that. Lord, that we would trust you, and that, Lord, that we would, through your spirit, obey your word. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to worship through reading and responding to your word. Uh, For those joined with us on campus and those who will be uh, watching online, uh, Lord, we pray that your faithfulness would ring true in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Uh, Romans 15. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. And if you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1051. Uh, 1051, that's where we'll be this morning. For the next several weeks, we are going to have uh, what's called an Advent series. Uh, Technically, Advent is roughly four weeks, uh, which uh, it would be now through uh, Christmas Eve, but we're going to go a little bit further than that. We'll go all the way through January the 1st. Uh, But uh, the beauty of Advent, and and you may be like me, Uh, for many years after I came to faith in Christ, I would hear the word Advent, I would see the word Advent uh, always around Christmas time. But I really didn't know what it meant. Uh, And so first, we're going to talk about Advent for just a moment, very quickly. And we'll talk about it every Sunday uh, that we uh, gather together. But Advent really talks about the anticipation of an arrival or a coming, an expectation, a, a longing to see something come to fruition, if you will. And so when we think about Advent... Uh, we know that everything about Advent has to do with Jesus Christ. This, this, this great expectation, this great anticipation, the great arrival, the coming of Jesus Christ, everything that we're going to study uh, from here on out, uh, from now until specifically January the 1st, is all about expectation, anticipation, uh, the longing for the coming of Christ. And when we think about Uh, Jesus' coming to this earth, Uh, it's important for us to recognize and understand why Jesus came in the first place, right? And so what we're going to do beginning today, we're going to look specifically today at at Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, uh, to set the context of that real quick. Uh, From Romans chapter 14 through uh, Romans 15, uh, really Paul has been addressing uh, disunity within the body of Christ. And so uh, you have uh, Christians who have come from Jewish background, Christians who have come from Gentile background. Uh, there's uh, some conflict going on, specifically in chapter 14. And, and what Paul does in, in uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, as he talks about the importance of welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us, right? Or accept one another as Christ has accepted us. And the beauty of it is in verse 7, Paul makes a specific statement. He says we are to accept or welcome one another for the glory of God. So the unity in the church is not first and foremost about us. It's about the glory of God. And what Paul does in verses 8 through 13 is he really tells an amazing Uh, perspective of the story of Christmas, not really talking about unity specifically, 
but really about the fact that Christmas is first and foremost not about us, but it's about him. And I believe that the more we grab hold of that fact, that, that it's about him first and foremost, we benefit from it, praise God for that, but if we can focus on him, especially during this time of Christmas, we will not only appreciate more, but we will understand the beauty of God's grace at, at the very fact that he came for us, right? And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to read verses 8 through 13 this morning and then unpack uh, this passage and then we'll pick up another passage next week and go from there. So Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, the scripture says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glory, glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it says, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, as Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will be the Gentiles' hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so from our passage this morning, we're going to unpack three important truths when it comes to the fact that Jesus came, right? So the first one is this, Jesus came to show the faithfulness of God. So when we think about the story of Christmas, at the very, uh, out of the gates, the very fact that Jesus came is to show the faithfulness of God. And we see this specifically in verse 8. Uh, Paul said this in verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. The circumcised here would be talking about the Jewish people uh, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So the very fact that that Jesus came to this earth reminds us that Jesus did what you and I wouldn't do, right? Jesus left his throne in heaven to come here, right? There's not a single person in this room that probably would give up the best seat in the house, right? You're watching the game. Some of us wish we didn't watch the game, but you're watching the game and you got the best seat. You got everything right there at your disposal. You're not giving up that seat. In fact, I know some of you were called by your spouse or your child to do something for them that was far more of greater importance than watching the game yesterday, and you said, what, hold on a second, right? Just a minute. And a minute, according to football time, can last forever, right? So Jesus does what we would never do. Jesus comes as a servant, right? The scripture says that he became a servant. And the reason why Jesus came as a servant was to show God's truthfulness. Jesus came into the world as the Jewish Messiah to prove to the universe that God tells the truth. He only tells the truth. He never lies. Every word that God communicates comes true. And in keeping his word, God also confirms his promises. The word confirmed there in the Greek talks about something that is guaranteed, something that is secure. And Paul says that Jesus came to confirm his promises, which God gave to who? The patriarchs. That's what he's talking about. Now, now the question is, who is the patriarchs? Well, Paul is reaching back to the Old Testament, and specifically, he's going to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So those Old Testament saints, thousands of years ago, and the promise that God gave to them, and that initial promise was given to Abraham. The scripture says in Genesis 12, 3, God speaking to Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Be blessed. Now, what's amazing about this promise that is given to Abraham, there's many things that are amazing about it. First, Genesis 12, 1 says that God spoke to Abraham. Man, that's a gift of grace right there. God didn't have to speak to Abraham, but God does. God speaks to Abraham. The second thing that's amazing about this particular promise that's given to Abraham is that God makes this promise to Abraham before the Jewish people were even a people, Right? So before, uh, way before the exodus in Egypt, uh, way before God gave the law to Moses, way before God gave Israel their first earthly king, God is making a promise, right? God is saying that through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. The other thing that's amazing, which is probably the most amazing thing about this particular promise, is that the scripture says that through your descendants, specifically a descendant, the nations will be blessed. Now, this is amazing because at this time, Abraham and Sarah had no children. Not only did they not have a son, but they didn't have children. Sarah was barren. But yet, God makes a promise to Abraham. In turn, he also makes that same promise to Sarah that through you, through you, the nations will be blessed. And at the ripe old age of 100, Abraham, and the age of 90, Sarah, Guess what? God fulfills his promise. Isaac is born. And Genesis 25 tells us that a few years after Isaac was born, uh, Abraham dies. Now that begs the question, does the promise die too? Does the promise die when Abraham dies? Well, God confirms the same promise to Isaac. He says in Genesis 26 verse 4, I, speaking of the Lord, will multiply your, speaking of Isaac, offspring as the stars of heaven will give, you, give to you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So what is God confirming to Isaac? The same promise that I gave to your father Abraham is the same promise that I'm going to give to you. Several years later pass and uh, Isaac and his wife uh, Rachel have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And, and God does what? He confirms that same promise to Jacob. In Genesis 28, verse 14, the scripture says, Your offspring, speaking of Jacob, shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families or all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then after Jacob dies, what happens is generation after generation, all of Israel is looking forward to and anticipating that the promised one is going to come. And through him, he would come and bless the nations and establish God's eternal kingdom. This was the central part of the Hebrew faith. The very fact that God is going to keep his promises, that he will be Faithful, And Paul says Christ came to confirm the promises that God had made. And the whole picture of Christ coming to us during this time of Christmas that we look back 2,000 years ago is a reminder to all of us that God still 
keeps his promises. All of the promises of God are true and guaranteed. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. For what reason? For his glory. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus comes as a Jew to the Jews, showing the truthfulness of God and confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. Why? Because he is what? He is faithful. And you look at history of the Old Testament time and time again. The unfaithful people are his people. But the faithful one, time and time again, is who? It is him. Why? Because he is true to his name. And here's the sad part. You know, we talk about the faithfulness of God today. And I'm, I guarantee we surveyed this room. We will, if we're honest, agree that we're the unfaithful partner, right? God is the faithful husband, right? But the reality is, for some, that's not enough. To know that God is always faithful is not enough to trust him, to receive him. In fact, John speaks of this in John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. He, speaking of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That is, that is, they did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not do what? They didn't receive him. They didn't trust him. And this is one of the reminders that we have to face as Christians, specifically as we think about Jesus coming into the world. Not everybody's going to trust. Not everybody's going to believe. Right? But that does not... That does not uh, contend with the fact that God is what? That he is always faithful. And sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we hear uh, reasons why they don't want to receive the Lord. And we struggle, especially when it's our own loved one. And we think, well, is God truly that faithful? Is God truly that truthful? Is God truly the one who keeps his promises? And it's a reminder to us that though God is forever faithful, it does not mean that everyone will receive him. So you continue to trust in the faithfulness of God. You continue to reflect the faithfulness of God to those around you. And that decision is between them and the Lord. Now the question is, do you believe God is faithful to you? Right now, where you're at. You think about your circumstance that you're in right now. Do you truly believe that God is faithful to you? Not what you communicate to the masses, but when it's just you by yourself contemplating your situation, do you truly believe that God is faithful to you? So Jesus came to show the faithfulness of God. Secondly, Jesus came to display the glory of God. He came to display the glory of God. And we're going to see this uh, in verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12. Uh, Paul says, beginning in the first part of verse 9, he says uh, that Jesus came, right, he became a servant, uh, not only uh, to the Jews, but the scripture goes on to say, in and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, uh, who are the Gentiles? Well, if you don't have genu Jewish ancestry, guess what? Uh, you're part of that Gentile race. And that would be probably all of us, if not 99% of us uh, today. Uh, so Jesus not only came, became a servant to the Jewish people, but he also came uh, to us. He came to serve us. Jesus came to the Gentiles for the glory of God. Now think about that for just a minute. Again, the Christmas story is about the glory of God, not about us, right? We're the benefits. We benefit from that. But from the very beginning of the Christmas story, when, when Jesus enters this world, remember what the angels were crying out 
The angel said what? Glory to God in the highest, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So everything about the story of Christmas is talking about the glory of God. From the beginning of Jesus' entrance into this world, even to the very end of Jesus' life on this earth, right before he goes to the cross, right? He's spending time with his Father, his Heavenly Father, and he, we see this high priestly prayer that's happening in John 17. And what does the Scripture say in John 17, verses 1 through 4? The Scripture says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so he just spent uh, some time with his disciples uh, prior to this, and the Scripture says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, so he's beginning to pray to the Lord, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may do what? May glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life that they would what that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do so Jesus's whole life here on earth was to do what was to glorify his Father in heaven and what Paul tells us in Romans 15 9 is that part of Jesus's work on earth is so that the Gentiles would know him and that they would glorify God for his, because of his mercy. The story of Christmas reminds us that the promises of God aren't just for the Jewish people, but they're also for you and I today. The very fact that Jesus came to this earth and ultimately died on the cross and yet rose from the grave reminds us that he has shown us true and tremendous mercy and that we can glorify him because of that. The very fact that God is merciful to the outsider is amazing. For years, for centuries, for generation after generation, it was the Gentiles that were cut off from the promises of God. They weren't part of God's covenant people. Only the Jewish people were part of God's covenant people. But yet, we are, we are going to find that throughout the entire Old Testament, God has communicated to the Jewish people that he has a heart for the nations, that he has a love not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, that he has come to show tremendous mercy. Jesus has come to unify both Jew and Jew Gentile together as one for the glory of God. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Paul says, remember that you, so he's talking about Gentile Christians here. He says, remember that you, uh, were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is a desperate situation. Before Christ came, the Gentiles were without hope, right? They were alienated from God. They were separated from the promises of God. They had no Messiah, no understanding of the Messiah. We just sung Living Hope uh, just a few minutes ago. The reason why you and I sit here today with living hope as a follower of Christ is the very fact that Jesus came. Jesus came to unite the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, and the truth of God, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And for the Gentiles, this is huge news. 
Because again, for generation after generation after generation, where the Holy of Holies was, where the high priest could only go in the presence of God, and, and the courts beyond that were only for the Jewish men, and then another court for the Jewish uh, women and children, it was the outer court, the most outer court where the Gentiles could only go. And if they entered into any other court other than that, guess what? They would be killed. So they're on the outside looking in, and Jesus does the impossible. Jesus comes and breaks that barrier down so that you and I can be united as one for the glory of God. In other words, we have access to the Father because of Christ. Ephesians 2, 17 through 18, Paul goes on to say, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, speaking of Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen, Jesus is God's gift of mercy to all people. And, and we forget that. Well, we think that because we're an American citizen, we live in this world, this life, we have, we have everything at our disposal, that that's why we're blessed people. No, we're blessed because Jesus Christ came for the glory of God to unite one people to worship him. Jesus, again, is the gift to all people. We have access to him so that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation can worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to give evidence on the fact that this redemptive story of Christmas is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And he's going to go back and he's going to look at the story of the Old Testament. And we find several different evidences in the Old Testament on God's heart for the nations, for its glory. Romans 15, 9, the second part there, Paul says, as it is written. So when he says that, as it is written, he's talking about something that had been previously written, specifically the Old Testament, and this is what he's quoting. He says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 18, verse 49. Psalm 18, 49 says this, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. That, that the Psalm 18 is written by David. Uh, if you look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 50, uh, this is also uh, David. He's at the end of his life. Uh, and really, this is his victory song of praise to the Lord. The fact that God had delivered David from his enemies, from, from Saul, and he's talking about uh, the promises that are being fulfilled uh, because of his Lord of de for deliverance. And he goes on to say in verse 50, and I, the reason why I'm going to read verse 50 is important because there's an important word there. Uh, right after verse 49, verse 50 says this, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Why talk about that? Where the word anointed in verse 50 is actually the word Messiah. Messiah. And if you read Psalm 18, there's different places in the Old Testament that does this, but this is one particular case. In Psalm 118, or Psalm 18, it's talking, yes, about David, but it's also giving uh, prophetic language about Jesus Christ. So you read Psalm 18, you're going to see uh, death, burial, resurrection, uh, kingdom, and glory, all those things really pointing us to the greater king, not King David, but King Jesus. And the anointed one, it's the Messiah that is standing there, worshiping the Lord among the Gentiles. It's a beautiful picture of, of how God reveals himself in the Old Testament specifically, pointing us to someone who is greater, greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac, greater than Moses, greater than David, 
Everything about the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus Christ himself. So here we see in Psalm 18 uh, the very fact that God has a heart for the nations, uniting uh, both Jew and Gentile together. In Romans 15.10, Paul goes on to say, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So Paul speaks of the Gentiles worshiping God with the Jews, and he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is very significant as well. Uh, This is Moses' psalm. And this is right before Moses dies, right? And, and God commands Moses to go to the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, he gets to see the promised land, right? And this remind, remind ourselves that they, uh, Moses doesn't enter into the promised land, but he gets to see the promised land. And it's through that vision of the promised land and through the prompting of God, Moses cries out, what does he cry out? Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So God gives Moses a vision that there is going to be a day coming when the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, and both the Jew and the Gentile will be worshiping the Lord together. Paul continues in Romans 15, 11. He says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 117, and just a little bit of fat or history about Psalm 117. Uh, when you look at the Bible, uh, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, right? The very halfway point is, guess what? Psalm 117. Not only is Psalm 117 the midpoint of the Bible according to chapters, it's also the shortest psalm, and it's the shortest chapter in all the Bible. It's only two verses. So that's the reading plan that you want, right? You just want the two-verse two chapter. I'll take it, right? But there's a, some powerful words in Psalm 117. Again, the quote comes from verse 1. Uh, Praise the Lord, all nations. Exalt him, all people. So here the Gentiles are being summoned. They're being called to praise the Lord. That's what the word praise there means. Uh, the Hebrew word for praise in verse uh, 1 of Psalm 17 is talking about uh, inviting those to uh, do what you're doing. It's calling attention to something, right? And he says that we are to extol the Lord. This means to speak loudly of. And so the psalmist is saying that, that he's, he's, uh, he's bringing in an announcement. Uh, loudly, come, praise the Lord to every nation, right? And according to the Joshua Project, if you go there, which talks about the, 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 the nations of the world, the people groups of the world, uh, it, it talks about the fact that there are 17,429 known people groups in the world right now. Of those 17,429 people groups that are known right now, 43%, 43% are unreached, right? And so you see the, the psalmist's prayer that the nations would gather, every nation would gather and worship the Lord. We are called to worship the Lord loudly. Why? Because he says in verse 2, for great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of our Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The word great there is talking about mighty and strong. It's the mighty and strong faithfulness and mighty and strong steadfast love towards us that gives us a desire to worship the Lord. And then Paul continues with one last quote from the Old Testament. Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. And here Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, which says, in that day, 
uh, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesse is the father of King David, and so this is telling us that through uh, David's lineage, what? The Messiah is going to come. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, where you got the genealogy of Jesus, probably the stuff that we skip over because there's so many names there, guess what you're going to see? You're going to see God's hand over all of this. That, that yes, Jesus comes from the lineage of David. But again, the one who is coming is greater than David. And the king that is coming, the Messiah, King Jesus, will rule over the nations forever. Notice what Paul did in Romans 15, verses 9 through 12. Now, you may be thinking, man, this is too much information. Listen, it's good information. Why? Because Paul goes back to what? He goes back to the Psalms. He goes back to the law. He goes back to the prophets. And everything that Paul is doing is to, again, confirm that the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, and the glory of God has been all throughout the Old Testament for the Gentiles and the Jews to join together. Now, why is this significant? Well, after Jesus died on the cross and uh, resurrected from the dead, shortly after that, uh, Jesus uh, meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? Uh, these two disciples didn't recognize who Jesus was during that time, uh, but they were confused, they were perplexed, because how is it that the, the Messiah King, who is here to unite all things to the Lord and have his eternal kingdom set up, how is that going to be possible if Jesus died, right? How is that possible? And Jesus uh, meets with them, and he begins to explain the scripture to them. And, and this is what he says in Luke 24. The scripture says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, those two disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be what? Must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be what? Proclaimed in his name to who? To all nations, beginning where? Beginning from Jerusalem. Again, you see God's hand all throughout the scripture that God wants to unite all for the glory of God and the worship of him. Everything about the story of Christmas is pointing to the work of Jesus. Without Jesus, the nations cannot receive forgiveness for their sins. Without Jesus, the nations cannot enjoy the promises and faithfulness of God. Without Jesus, the nations will not be able to glorify God in this life and the next. So please understand, the story of Christmas is first and foremost to show the faithfulness of God and display the glory of God. And that leads us to our third and final truth this morning. Jesus came to bring hope Jesus came to bring hope. The very fact that God is committed to his name, committed to his word, committed to his character, committed to his glory, has benefits for you and I today. The very fact that God is committed to himself means that there is hope for you and I. And that's why this is important. And what Paul does in verse 13, he, he closes with a word of prayer, a benediction. He says in verse 13, may, that word may talks about desire. This is a desire. That may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may what? You may abound in hope. Paul says, God, God, you're the God of hope. Jesus is the hope for all nations. God is the what? He is the source of our hope. He is the giver of our hope. 
And when we think about hope from a biblical perspective, this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't, I hope I get an iPhone for Christmas, right? Some of you may be wishing that. This is, when we think about hope from a biblical perspective, it is the confident assurance we have in life, not because of our circumstances, but because God will always be true to his character, true to his word, true to his purposes, and true to his glory. And the base of our hope is what? It is him and him alone. Paul had already said in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? We might have hope. So when we look back to the Old Testament... And we see the struggle of Abraham, the struggle of Sarah, the struggle of Joseph, the struggle of Moses, the struggle of Esther, the struggle of Ruth, the struggle of all the saints from the past. We look at them and we say, oh, where did their hope come from? Their hope came from the Lord. And when we look back to the faithful saints of the past and we see how that faith sprung up hope, you and I are reminded that you and I can have hope because of what Christ has done for us. Christ is our only hope. Advent reminds us that Christ is our long-awaited hope for this life and the next. And that begs the question, what are you truly hoping in today? Where are you truly putting your hope today? You see, Christ being our only hope means that we can be filled with all joy. Paul says that we can be filled with all joy. The word all means every part Every part of your life right now can be filled with the joy of the Lord. Why? Because God is the God of joy. Joy is the state of that inner well-being and satisfaction that comes from knowing and trusting our sovereign Lord. Why can we have inner joy? Because God can be trusted, right? God is faithful to his promises, and God is also faithful to you. Jesus reminds us that he is for our joy. When Jesus is spending time with his disciples right before he's arrested and, and crucified on a cross, in John 15, he says these words, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus desires that not only the joy of Christ be in him, but it be in him in such a way that it overflows, overflowing joy. And the connection point that John, uh, Jesus is making in John 15 is that we are to abide in him, that we are to rest in him, that we are to cling to him, for apart from him, we can do nothing. And not only is Jesus uh, the God of hope and the God of joy, the scripture says he is the God of peace. The word peace refers to uh, shalom, the wholeness, completeness. It's, it's rest for our souls, right? And how is it that you and I receive uh, peace from the Lord? Uh, the scripture writes in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. You see the connection point of faith. Trusting in the Lord, relying on the Lord. It reminds us that in the midst of the chaos of life, our world, our thoughts, our emotions, and our relationships, the peace that we are longing for only comes through him. And because we are at peace with God, we also have access to the peace of God. How do we receive it? Faith. Look again at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in what? In believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Remember, John chapter 1 told us that not everybody was going to receive him, right? But that's not the end of the story. John 1, 12 says, 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. And as a child of God, guess what? He's forever faithful. And even though he is for his glory, and that's a beautiful thing, we can experience his mercy. And the scripture says that we would abound in hope. That word abound means to overflow with hope. Overflowing hope in the midst of discouragement, fear, anxiety, depression, discomfort, distress. Even when we feel defeated, the story of Christmas reminds us that hope abounds where Christ abounds, right? And where Christ abounds, we are satisfied. He is our joy. He is our peace. He is our everlasting hope. Do you find that you're satisfied in him today? As a follower of Christ, are you truly satisfied in him today? You see, Christmas has a great conflict. We're rushing around like crazy people, if you will. Going here and going there and doing this and doing that. That if we just get the right thing, if, if the house is perfect, if the outside is perfect, if everything we do is perfect, then we're going to be satisfied. Listen, I, I know that when that's our mentality, especially during this time of season, guess what? Nobody's satisfied, right? Everybody's on pins and needles. Everybody's on eggshells. Conflict arises. Chaos ensues. The question is, are you truly satisfied? Listen, a heart that is satisfied in the Lord can embrace, if you will, the busyness of this season, but do so without losing hope, joy, and peace in the Lord. Christmas reminds us that he is faithful and he is worthy of all glory and honor. And the beauty is, this is not only God's desire for you, this is God's desire for all the nations. The scripture says in Psalm 67, verse 1 through 4, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. I'm reminded, based on that last passage, that if our, if our hearts aren't satisfied in the Lord, our desire will not be for the nations. Right? Our desire will not be for all people your neighbor, your co-worker, your friend at school. Our desire won't be that they worship the Lord. But when our heart is content in Him, satisfied in Him, resting in the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, and the glory of God, guess what? We can't help but have that overflowing hope in our lives be expressed to the peoples, to the nations that are around us. Where are you lacking in your trust and the faithfulness of God? Have you found yourself today not being focused on God's glory, but your own glory? And, and when that happens in our life, as that happens in our life, we are, we are robbing God of the beauty of the story of Christmas. Listen, it's not first and foremost about us. It's ultimately about Him. And when we rest in that, when we're satisfied in God getting glory, then guess what? We receive hope, joy, peace. So whatever your decision is today,